Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, hello, this is uh, Don Roberto. I'm uh, here as the Bible geek. I'm willing to answer some questions from you, and maybe someday I'll call on you to do me a favor. Oh, sorry, I, I was just watching uh, part of The Godfather, and I guess it rubbed off there. Uh, well, uh, thanks to the kind auspices of Mythicist Milwaukee, I'm back doing the Bible geek, and I uh, want to get right into some uh, questions from the rain barrel. It's overflowing. So uh, Willem Dafoe, uh, as Jesus, is uh, requested to answer this one. So there couldn't be a pizza to tempt Jesus? If there wasn't the chance for temptation, why bother? Also, what toppings would he pick? This is from Pope John Paul III, The Revenge. Uh, this was a follow-up to a question uh, from His Holiness from a while ago uh, about the temptation narrative. And uh, I guess, uh, well... You know, it's. I'm guessing uh, Jesus would have uh, been tempted by pepperoni pizza, but of course, if he was Jewish, he wouldn't have given in, uh, son of God or not. Uh, but uh, what about uh, the uh, the question, the, the which has been a biggie uh, for theologians for a long time? Was Jesus incapable of sinning, or uh, did he, did he pass a test because he uh, uh, could sin but didn't? And uh, in a way, this focuses the issue of Arian versus Athanasian Christology. Uh, if Jesus was a, a changeable, mutable person who could grow, especially through trials, that would imply he could have given into temptation, was really tempted, but said, no, I'm not going to do this. Um, but, uh, and, and if he were, uh, just God on earth, uh, presumably no, uh, nothing could have tempted him. And, uh, that, that, but I, I don't think the, uh, the question has to be framed that way, though that, that is worth pursuing. It's an interesting, uh, possibility. You have to ask yourself, um, I mean, assuming the traditional idea that Jesus was God incarnate, can God be tempted to to sin to to do wrong? Uh, well, by definition, he he can't. But in the sense, it's not like something he wishes he could do, but uh, controls himself. Something he wishes he could do, but uh, grudgingly uh, resists the temptation. It's also not like it's something he couldn't do. But the thing is, given God's complete complete self-sufficiency and omnipotence, it's absurd to imagine God being tempted 
by anything. Uh, why? Now, I know that it looks like there's some awfully bad stuff God as a character does, but we're talking about going beyond that into abstract theology. Uh, why does uh, – I've referred to this before in one of my favorite movies, Fanny and Alexander – uh, Bishop Vegaris asks uh, young Alexander, who's been telling whoppers of, of lies at school, is why does one lie? And Alexander says, to gain an advantage. And he said, that that's right. Well, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, I think that's correct. Uh, you, you're cheating. You're taking a shortcut to, uh, to, to get some results, some, some, uh, thing you desire that you can't get honestly. Uh, and, uh, so you lie about needing it or about being entitled to it or having the money for it. If they'll just, uh, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for the hamburger today. Uh, and, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but is there any way God would be at a disadvantage and, and needing to cut corners or cheat or lie to gain his ends? Uh, it's ridiculous to think so. Uh, could God have a need he had to fulfill and uh, uh, the only way to do it was lying? Uh, it's absurd by definition. God's attribute of aseity, that is uh, uh, self-sufficiency, rules that out. It's like I am never tempted to go steal my cat's food, right? It's, I mean, I could do it, but it wouldn't occur to me to do it because it is of no use or interest to me. Uh, and so God would simply have no occasion to do anything wrong. Right? Now, th that, then you get into theodicy. Well, yeah, that does seem to be the definition of God, but then how do we square that with these ancient stories? Good luck with that one. But in terms of the definition of God, if you say that Jesus was truly God, uh, then um, he uh, presumably could not sin. Again, the possibility would be there. Uh, he could have hopped in the sack with Mary Magdalene or, or whatever. Uh, but uh, it, it's it's not that, uh, you know, impossible to imagine a human being holding out uh, against uh, things that attracted him. But if if he is God incarnate, you can imagine he he's uh, willing to uh, undergo whatever deprivation uh, he uh, needs as a positive thing, like the way uh, Jesus is depicted in the Sufi sayings of Jesus, that uh, he, he's not even tempted to have a roof over his head uh, because he he knows that uh, physical deprivation, asceticism, would bring him closer to God, would thin the veil between his humanity and his divinity even more so. So in a way, I think it's kind of a moot question. Uh, it, it's like uh, insofar as he is God as well as man, there simply would be no uh, attraction for sin. That, that's exactly the way Wesley put it when he talked about entire sanctification or Christian perfection. He had admitted he hadn't attained it and wasn't sure he had ever met anybody who had. Uh, but he said, theoretically, one could be sanctified by the indwelling Christ and uh, by the Holy Spirit, and that uh, you would simply be repulsed by anything you knew would offend God. And uh, it's not inconceivable to imagine that somebody's uh, 
priorities could be so realigned that uh, none of these worldly or fleshly things uh, would, or even psychological ones like uh, self-righteousness or the lust for power. It's not hard to imagine somebody saying, that crap, that is supposed to tempt me? Heck no. Uh, I, uh, I, I love God and uh, or it's kind of like in uh, in rabbinic ethics. They say, well, uh, there's the good man and then there's the perfect man. The good person manages to uh, shy away from sin because he fears the consequences. Well, that's all we can really require. And most people don't even do that, right? But the perfect man is the one that says, uh, I want to be as close to the will of God as I can. Uh, and uh, one can imagine that, uh, you know, Jesus, as fully uh, human uh, would would feel that way. So I don't know that that's really that much of a problem. Okay, uh, thanks for your popishness. Ken Bradley in Winchester, uh, Kentucky. I think it is obvious that Mark was insinuating that John the Baptist was in fact Elijah when he describes his clothing. Mark one six sounds an awful lot like Second Kings one eight, you know, where Elijah is described as a, uh, wearing a hair shirt or literally being a hairy man. This would coincide with Malachi four five, the last verse of the Old Testament that says Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So, I have a hypothesis I hope you'll review. John the Baptist's baptism of water is the equivalent of the oil for anointing the new king. Since the Messiah is the anointed one, this is Mark's heralding of the new king of Israel. This would address the apologist's assertion of the criterion of embarrassment. You know, how this must have happened because it was really embarrassing to the Christian view of Jesus. Uh, he's getting baptized by a spiritual superior? Uh, what? Uh, or he's re- <laughs> repenting of his sins to be have him absolved through baptism? Uh-oh. Um, so, you know, th- this might take care of that. This is a way of seeing that story as a positive theological, Christological statement by Mark. Okay, back to uh, Ken. Uh, Mark created this motif for a purpose, and it fell on deaf ears as Matthew, Luke, and John felt that they had to uh, defend this passage and expound on it. So am I off base, or does this have merit? Uh, well, oh, and uh, also, do you think Mark saw this as a possible impediment, so he added his own defense in Mark uh, 1, 7 uh, through 8, which I guess would be the uh, <clears throat> biblical quote and all that? Well, uh I'm, I, I see it as a little bit problematical because uh, in Zechariah somewhere, uh, it, uh, it says that... Um, you can tell somebody claiming to be a prophet by wearing uh, they're wearing a hair shirt. Uh, well, that implies that um, the uh, garb of Elijah, as described in Second Kings one, uh, was typical for ascetics and prophets, or it might have been. Uh, well, I mean, in, in the Zechariah context, that's definitely the idea. Where Does it mean that prophets were all trying to look like Elijah? Could be. It could well be. But uh, 
it's uh, it, given that it was a broader thing than just Elijah himself. I've always been a little hesitant as to uh, whether we're supposed to recognize John during his baptism as supposedly the returned Elijah. Now, I know later on, Jesus is made to say that uh, John the Baptist was the figurative fulfillment of Elijah, but um, there's nothing that really suggests that in the baptism sequence. And uh, but it, it could be, but also the the idea of just the water uh, is that it's not clear how they're being baptized. Are they being sprinkled like uh, they used to anoint the articles in the tabernacle and the temple, sprinkling them? Uh, that would be kind of anointing. But if they were dunking people in the water, uh, that wouldn't really be anointing. And it's not with oil, right? If you had the early Christian chrismation in play, where they would anoint you with oil too, that I could see. But to me, it's not a strong enough parallel to be likely an allusion to that. However, in the larger sense, I do agree. I don't think Mark saw this as embarrassing, and it, it's very likely that uh, he took this to be um, the uh, an example, well, like Jesus says in some of the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, uh, do this in remembrance of me. Well, so uh, institutes the Lord's Supper, according to some evangelists anyway. Well, um, isn't this a paradigm for baptism? Uh, and, um, I mean, Matthew seems to put it that way. Uh, he says it, it behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, to fulfill in Matthew sometimes means fulfilling a prophecy, but sometimes just means fulfilling the law. Uh, and that so we ought to, you, okay, I don't need it, John, but uh, let's do it anyway, because it's a good idea for us to provide a good example for piety. Uh, well, Mark may have meant that. That's certainly been suggested by scholars. And in any event, uh, the criterion of embarrassment here uh, to vindicate the historicity of this utterly fails for the simple reason that uh, uh, Mark didn't seem to find it offensive. Right? That's, he included it. He must have thought it was okay. Uh, and uh, the, the, one of the big problems with the criterion of, dis, of, of um, embarrassment is that if, if you can show that uh, an earlier passage was an embarrassment to those who wrote later versions, and this is a prime example, that proves nothing other than that uh, the theology of the later writers had trouble with something not problematic to an earlier writer. Uh, it doesn't mean that the, the thing described in the earlier version must have been true. It's just a gross uh, non sequitur. It's amazing how long that's gone unnoticed. Uh, Rich from New Jersey, my old pal. Um, just one second here, folks. Okay, uh, uh, let's see, uh, he's my uh, old buddy and an astute Bible uh, critic himself. Uh, he says, uh, 
what would have happened if the Marcionite sect became the dominant and orthodox version of the church? And how much different would Christianity today be because of it? Uh, I don't think it would be very different because um, most types of Christianity, with the exception of some like uh, uh, the Seventh-day Adventism, uh, have uh, pretty much relegated the the Old Testament to the status of just a historical, allegedly historical prologue. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, like you could even lose the Ten Commandments and uh, not have a problem because pretty much the same ground is covered in the New Testament. Uh, so I, I don't think it would, I mean, you'd still have it there to refer to, to elucidate the New Testament, just like we use the Pseudepigrapha and the Dead Sea scrolls. Um, I mean, not having it as part of the Christian Bible wouldn't mean you'd go out and burn all the copies of it you could. Uh, wouldn't mean uh, that you thought it was bad. I mean, Marcion didn't, from what we understand. He just thought it was not a Christian scripture, and it was not about Jesus, literally or figuratively. Uh, but one big difference would be that you might not have had the sorry record of Christian anti-Semitism. Because uh, there's this um, this election envy that uh, the uh, this the Christian envy of the Jewish status as the chosen people, and uh, what really makes that poisonous is the notion that uh, those Jews rejected their Messiah and they're being punished for it now. Well, they asked for it. Uh, you wouldn't have had that. That wouldn't have been in Christian theology uh, if uh, Marcionism had prevailed, because they'd say, look, the Jews are expecting a very different Messiah, and eventually he'll come for them. Good, more power to them. That's just not Jesus. Uh, so I think uh, things would have been better had uh, the Marcionite uh, type of Christianity prevailed. Uh, but it didn't, and uh, what the heck. And luckily, at this late date, um, most Christians have shed the awful uh, anti-Semitic nonsense, even fundamentalists. I was shocked some time ago to hear Ann Coulter say to uh, a a Jew, uh, I think a fellow conservative, I don't, I don't remember, but it was some talk show where she's sticking up for her faith, conservative, evangelical, Presbyterian. And she said, uh, oh, um, that uh, Jesus is your Messiah, but uh, don't worry, you're going to heaven anyway. I was amazed pleasantly to hear that. Right? It's it's not that tough to, as a Christian of any kind to have a double covenant theology, uh, where you know you 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 think uh, of Romans where it says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Well, uh, you can't really uh, say that and then glibly say that. Uh, well, okay, chosen people, not anymore. Sorry. Um, so um, hopefully it'll go more and more in the non-animosity uh, direction. Uh, and then uh, Rich concludes, Blessed are the cheesemakers. And indeed they are. Uh, Acapulco J. 
says, I'm a fan of your Bible podcasts. I know the Bible more from your podcast than from actually reading it. I need to actually read the Bible for better understanding. I joined a men's Bible study group a month ago uh, called Bible Study Fellowship. There's a, it's a website. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, the three classes I have attended started with John 17 and progressed to the end of John. The group is made of about 125 adult males, no one under the age of 50, and middle class. The classes take a few verses, discuss them, uh, then listen to a sermon about them. The classes do not deviate from standard biblical thought, but they are pleasant and thought-provoking. The reading of the Bible raises questions. Here are mine. Uh, see, in John 19, 26 and 27, Jesus on the cross says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to a disciple standing by Mary, Behold your mother. These two statements sound so human and vulnerable in their utterance. Can this be the Son of God come to liberate the earth of all sin? But it sounds so weak. Surely this cannot be the Messiah. Was Jesus the Messiah at that point? Because he doesn't sound like it. When did he become all-powerful, if not moments away from human death? Well, uh... This is uh, interesting in that there's, well, any way you read it, there's a bit more than meets the eye. Traditionally, the uh, the inference, and, and I don't really buy it, but it's, it's not stupid or anything, is that uh, Jesus is uh, a thoughtful son, and who's going to take care of his mother? Uh, it, it sort of implies Jesus has been taking care of her and and if she's at the cross maybe that supposes she has been in his entourage all along it's hard to say exactly if the early christians thought that because as you know in the empty tomb stories and then the cross stories there are references to mary a mary b mary c and who are they it's you know it's not that clear uh, and if if any of them is supposed to be mary the mother of jesus though though probably so but it's it's not unreasonable to think yeah she had been in the in the group and uh jesus had been watching out for her and now he's trying to make sure that someone else uh will uh, and uh so uh you know that's just showing him in a good light but that does seem a little odd to me um do you really need to show how great Jesus is at this point uh and uh it's i don't know um it could be but then some especially roman catholics have thought that this is um the beginning of a certain trajectory whereby tradition tells us that John moved to Ephesus, John the beloved disciple, that's who he was talking to, and that he took uh, Mary with him and, and cared for her. Well, I would put the sandal on the other foot and say it's a little more likely that whoever had such a tradition in mind is trying to anchor it into the gospel story that way. Um. Uh, a, a different, to move over a notch, to take an even more uh, higher critical approach, this could be understood as um, 
factional church polemics and that the mother of Jesus is being used as a symbol for the true church. Now, you remember earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus' brothers come in for a drubbing, right? They're mocking him. They, it says explicitly, even his brothers didn't believe in him. Oh, you, you're not going to the feast. You, that's bad PR. If you want to get a big reputation, surely you want to go where the crowds are. And, and uh, so they're, they're skeptical uh, about him. And uh, so John may be thinking of that and saying, yeah, he wouldn't uh, entrust his mother to these louts. Uh, and uh, so uh, instead, she, uh, the church, um, I mean, that's already factional polemics, right? Somebody is trying to denigrate the famous brethren of the Lord, and uh, that that's what is the point also of Jesus at the cross saying, I'll tell you who has my, who has uh, the guardianship of my heritage. Uh, it's the beloved disciple or whatever faction claims him as their figurehead. I tend to think that that is is really the, the point there. Second question, Jay says, Jesus begins his miracles with the wine at the wedding, fresh new wine of the highest quality. He ends his human life after tasting sour wine hoisted to him on a sponge at the end of a spear. All I can say is, wow, the late great Acharya S. talked of how the wine was to incorporate Dionysus, the god of wine, into the Bible. Sounds like one very early great product placement in the Bible. Um, well, the water into wine surely seems to mirror the uh, supposed miracle of the priests of Dionysus, who would... Um, at the festival, fill these jars with water, and uh, then uh, three days later, they would open the locked door and ladle some out, notly mackerel, it's wine. And uh, even the ancient writers tell us this was a, a con game, and even how they did it, it's kind of like uh, Bell and the Dragon, that story in the Greek Daniel um, but nonetheless, people thought it was a miracle, and it does kind of look like, yeah, this has been retold with Jesus as the miracle worker. Um, so I think there is Dionysus influence, but I think the uh, the sour wine really comes from the psalm. They gave me vinegar to drink, uh, and so on. I think it's it's just another attempt to. Uh, come up with biblical uh, prophetic proof texts, even though uh, that psalm that is quoted is in no wise a prophecy. It's part of a lament psalm. Um, uh, this one from Kim the Revelator, who's written a great book on the book of Revelation. Uh, I listened to your April 14th Bible Geek, uh, one of the questions was on the synagogue of Satan as a reference to Marcion. So I thought I would shamelessly plug my book by pointing out how John, or the author of Revelation, uses the synagogue of Satan in Revelation. From first glance, the synagogue of Satan is only used in the letter letters to the church churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia. However, 
John wrote the book of Revelation through a process of parallel formation. See my book, How John Wrote the Book of Revelation from Concept to Publication, which is only $2 for the Kindle and Google Book version. Uh, the, you, you ought to look into that, folks. It is really fascinating the way he came up, the way he's, uh, come up with, uh, showing where the book was expanded. Uh, it's really ingenious and pretty convincing. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. The church at Philadelphia is the sixth church. And if you laid the text, texts of the passages of the sixth church, Revelation 3, 7 through 13, the sixth seal, Revelation 6, 12 through 17, the sixth trumpet, Revelation 9, 13 through 21, the sixth bowl, Revelation 16, 12 through 15, and the final battle of Satan attacking the city of Jerusalem, Revelation 20, 7 through 10, you end up with a complete story of Satan gathering his forces to destroy the believers. I illustrate this in my book on pages 290 to 291, by having all the texts laid out side by side with key parallels and bullet points. Uh, It is really a remarkable book. You you owe it to yourself to to take a look at this. Uh, And that's the geek saying this, uh, not Kim. Uh, The reference to the synagogue of Satan and the church of Smyrna, Revelation 2, 8 through 11, deals with the religious aspect of the synagogue of Satan. He does this by forming a chiasmus with the first three churches and the primary beast passage found in Revelation 13, 1 through 18. Without going into the complexity of the passage, the the first church, Ephesus, tests apostles, while the last beast section depicts the choice believers will have to make between accepting the lies of the false prophet, um, synonym of apostles, uh, for their food uh, or life, uh, or their own life for the love of Jesus. See Revelation 2, 4 through 5, Ephesus losing their first love. Uh, the Church of Smyrna, Revelation 2, 6 through 11, has two sections. The latter has them going to prison and killed, Revelation 2, 10 through 11. And the middle section of the beast passage has it that they will be taken into captivity, synonymous to prison, and, um, and killed by the sword, Revelation 13.10. The church of Pergamum has the believers living where Satan has his throne, Revelation 2.13, whereas in Revelation 13.2, we have the dragon's throne, synonymous for Satan's throne in Revelation. Uh, In both Pergamum and Smyrna, we have a religious element, Smyrna resists and Pergamum succumbs uh, uh, to, uh, to it, while in the beast passage, we have the whole world worshiping the beast, Revelation 13, 4 through 5, reflecting elements of the churches in Pergamum and Smyrna. 
This is covered in pages 275 to 282. I hope that I adequately condensed many pages of material into two paragraphs without obfuscating the text to the listeners. Uh, Kim the Revelator, that's what I called him, and he picked it up. Um, Oh, yeah. If your listeners wish to have a summary of how the book of Revelation was written, I have a website. They can glimpse, they can get a glimpse of how many other books in the Bible, how, how many other books in the Bible were written. And, uh, it's, uh, called with no spaces, Revelation Draft Hypothesis dot info slash. So thank you, Kim. Fascinating stuff. Uh, David Oliver Smith, another uh, terrific author associated with the Bible Geek. I was reading Galatians and was struck by Paul's attenuating, oh, wait a minute, no, I'm sorry, uh, alternating use of Petros and Kephas to identify the Jerusalem apostle Peter. I understand that Kephas is the Greek transliteration of the Aramaic name meaning rock, as Petros is in Greek. What I had not noticed before was that Paul uses Kephas in Galatians 1, 18, 2.9, and 2.14, but he uses Petros at 2.7 and 8. It looks like 2.7 and 8 are an, imp- an interpolation, adding Peter's credentials as an apostle to the Jews. Either that or Petros and Kephas are two different people. I've read that some think Kephas is a corruption of Cleopas or Cleophas, a whole different person from Peter. Uh, what is the geek's opinion on this alternating name for Peter? Well, I do think you're right, and I believe this is uh, a, uh, a hypothesis of many of the older, higher critics that that this sudden change of name uh, presupposes an identification between uh, Cephas or Kephas and uh, and Peter that uh, is not present in Galatians. That is, there's no reason to think the author used both names interchangeably, but that somebody has added the Peter thing in order to identify them in the mind of the reader. Now, were they originally the same? That's tough to say. Some have thought maybe not. In fact, I think in the Epistle of the Apostles, or uh, maybe it's one of the early church orders, they list the the twelve, and uh, Cephas is one of them as distinct from Peter. Uh, that's not much evidence, but it's not absolutely clear that they're the same guy. I believe Samuel Sandmel raised doubts about that more recently than the old tubing and critics. Um, I tend to think that uh, that Kephas is supposed to be Simon Bar Cleophas, one of the the pillars, one of the the brethren of the Lord, uh, the Desposuni, uh, who were um, the the pillar apostles, uh, and James the Just being the first uh, honcho of uh, the Jerusalem Church, 
Then when he died, uh, the similarly long-lived Simeon bar was, and that that is the Simeon who is mentioned, or Simon, uh, in, in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus goes back to uh, Nazareth and so on. Now, whether that is supposed to be Peter or not, I don't know, though I, I, I really can't say uh, it's uh, it's it's not unlikely that Simon Peter does attest the tradition that that Simon was the name and Kephas was the title the surname like uh, uh, James and John Boanerges but uh, on the other hand it could indicate a fusion of these two different characters and uh, why they anybody felt the need to do that is is probably lost to history Thomas Elder says, I'm writing you on Easter Sunday, so happy Easter. You (laughs) see how long it's taken me to get to this question. I just got back from Easter service with my mom, the the priest, when giving her sermon, uh, Episcopal Church, so there are female priests, said that she didn't believe that God killed Jesus. She was honest enough to say that people disagree with her on that point. The statement had me wondering if Jesus hadn't been put to death on the cross, but had instead died of old age, would God have still raised him from the dead? And if so, would that death and resurrection have had the same supposed effect? Personally, I highly doubt it. This seems like an example of trying to get God off the hook. Uh, there is so much theology wrapped up in the cross, and not to mention Old Testament, quote, prophecy, unquote, of the manner of Jesus' death death, that it seems as though it had to be this way and couldn't have been otherwise. What are your thoughts on this subject? Well, I think it was Gregory of Nyssa, or one of the Cappadocian theologians anyway, who said that uh, he couldn't have died in old age because um, he uh, had to be taken down in the vigor of his life. And uh, I suppose because there's just uh, dying of old age is is not really a sacrifice. Uh, Think of the last temptation of Christ where Jesus seems to come down from the cross and live out his his life and for decades and is dying peacefully in bed and suddenly all these decades later uh, some of the disciples come into the house and Judas is there and he said master you broke my heart and uh, this wasn't uh, the way you were supposed to die and so on they kind of replayed the scene uh, in an X-Files episode with uh, Mulder as the Christ figure interesting uh, well th- that like that showed that boy what a disappointment you were supposed to die as a sacrifice uh, this isn't that uh, and uh, Of course, that gets into the huge problem of what kind of a sacrifice was it if he was only dead for a day or so. Um, But uh, And there's huge problems uh, with uh, how the atonement is even supposed to make any sense. Once you stop taking it for granted, it uh, seems to unravel. Uh, The uh, And the larger question of theodicy 
when you say God didn't kill Jesus, do you mean God did not send him to die on the cross as a sacrifice? If that's what this priest thinks, uh, she's talking a major theological realignment. Uh, I, I don't know what she thinks instead, uh, that Jesus was simply an exemplary martyr. Uh, I don't know, but that's, that is a, that is a huge adjustment. You can possibly get God off the hook, but you've really ripped such a hole in the fabric. I, I don't know if you can continue to wear it. Oh boy. Okay. From Fred in, uh, Schenectady, New, New York. No accent requested. Good. Cause I don't think I'd have known. Which one to use? I've heard you say, and I've taken for granted, that the various Gospels were not written by the apostles whose names were slapped on them. However, a knowledgeable friend of mine, who I greatly respect, recently told me something to the contrary. In the case of John, he claimed that not only was it clearly written by John but that this was well documented, that we know a lot about John as a historical personage, and the circumstances and methodology to recheck events from memory are well known. My friend says that Polycarp describes the process in a letter written to a friend when the first questions of authenticity arose. Further, that John knew Polycarp... uh, that John knew Polycarp knew John personally and worked closely with him for decades. According to my friend, there is a web of correspondence that extends outward from Polycarp to various editorial assistants who participated in the process. Uh, that's sheer speculation, even if you accept this tradition. And that based on this evidence, the universal opinion in the early church was that the Gospel of John was authentic. Uh, by the way, there was no universal consent. There were people that thought the gospel was written by uh, the Gnostic Serinthus and didn't want it to be in the canon. Um, there is a tradition that uh, Marcion worked with John and uh, uh, added his own ideas, and it was too late to uh, purify the text, so John just had to live with it once he found out what had happened. So it's it wasn't universal. Anyway, my own quick research on Wikipedia revealed a late death date for John and that Polycarp's own lifespan overlapped with John's by several decades. Uh, Dr. Price, can you shed some light on this? What are your thoughts on my friend's claims? Are they supported by documentary evidence? Is there evidence that Polycarp knew John? And what are this web of correspondence? Uh, that that is, is just somebody's fantasy there. But the idea that he was... Um, uh, that that uh, it was John that wrote it and that Polycarp was his disciple. Uh, that's just church tradition. I think we first hear it in uh, in Eusebius. And there's, uh, there's just no reason to accept it. In my opinion, this is exactly like the Isnads of, of uh, the Hadith of Muhammad, where they'll have some kind of uh, statement of Muhammad, supposedly, or an anecdote about him. And it says, I got this from... Uh, 
Ibn so-and-so who heard this from uh, Ibn so-and-so who heard this from so-and-so and so-and-so all the way back to, to Abu Bekr or whatever, one of the companions of the prophets. Well, even in the ancient world, these things were known to be spurious. Uh, and uh, it's like the genealogies of Jesus, which uh, seem to be plainly spurious. It's just like a, a common uh pious fraud technique to get, well, to make up for the fact that the Gospel of John is anonymous, right? There's no name on it. Uh, and uh, so the, um, and in chapter 21, it says that uh, the uh, disciple who said this uh, was thus and so was uh, the one who wrote these things down. It's not even part of the original text. Uh, and so uh, it, it just seems to me this is this is wishful thinking turned into ecclesiastical tradition, then updated and modified uh, by uh, uh, by uh, apologetic uh, wishful thinking. It's uh, just uh, I think it's worthless. Um. Now, who was this? Yeah, Fred. Right, right. Fred Cole from Schenectady. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, boy, it's this tiny type. Let's see if I can read it. This is Chris from the desolation that is Yuma, Arizona. And let me uh, change the size of the font here so I can read the darn thing. Okay, yeah. Uh, here's one for the rain barrel and an interesting aside that I'd like to get your thoughts on. Being an ardent skeptic and all. Uh, UFOs, what do you think about that phenomenon? Okay, here goes. Back in March, I attended the 20th anniversary gathering of what's become known as the Phoenix Lights, a mass sighting of a series of lights, some say an ethereal craft hovering and then moving atop Camelback Mountain, a huge area directly in the heart of metropolitan Phoenix. It was a great event, full of seemingly credible speakers, and many of whom were professional people, as well as many attendees who were also seemingly normal folks, like he put in quotes, like myself, who also claimed to have seen this phenomenon, not to mention my wife and father among them, uh, who did in fact witness this event. Uh, um, but the one very similar, oh, I guess it means didn't witness this event, but the one very similar, which happened in 2007. That said, I wonder what the geek has to say about such things, as I know there is ample room for debunking in such a conversation. But when thousands of people report the same thing, it adds a new dimension. Get it? Yuck, yuck to this topic, methinks. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I expect some will tune out at this, but... Though I tend not to believe UFO abductee stories, uh, I tend to think that can be explained as some kind of hysterical uh, uh, hallucination thing or bogus recovered memories and all that. I do have to take seriously incidents 
such as you describe and for the reasons you describe. It doesn't seem to be a bunch of gap-toothed, web-footed uh, hicks uh, who uh, probably think they see aliens in the in the supermarket and all that. Uh, it, you've got uh, professional people uh, not looking to see this, not making anything out of it, um, and uh, and then especially. Uh, military and airline pilots with the various stories they've had. I just, whenever I hear the uh, uh, the explanations from the government, oh, it was a weather balloon, it was uh, swamp gas and all that, I think, boy, this sounds so much like the reaching ad hoc hypotheses of fundamentalist apologists. Uh, I, I just know something's uh, rotten and project blue book uh so i uh i mean it, it might the the idea of automatic skepticism about there being uh intelligent life in outer space and that they might have uh visited here you can view that as a kind of stubborn hangover of the ancient view that the earth is the center of the universe uh and that it, it's small it's comfy and cozy the planet's uh, like lights in the sky orbiting the earth closely and uh, and we're God's favorites. It seems to me this is the same sort of geocentricity. Uh, just uh, people haven't quite put two and two together that that's what it is. Uh, it, it seems that uh, given the fantastic uh, scope of the universe and all the planets being discovered and presumably countless more, uh, that uh, it, it would be very odd if there weren't intelligent species somewhere else. But how could they have gotten here? Well, it's, you know, they used to say that uh, no human being could survive uh, a ride in a car at five miles an hour. Uh, you can't bank on ignorance, right? You can't be sure that, oh, they'll never do discover so-and-so. So, -and -so. so I, I'm sorry if I do sound like a lunatic, but I, I take uh, the notion seriously. Uh, I, I don't want to say more than that, really, because we don't know. But boy, it's pretty tough to explain some of these things away. And so I don't. Okay, all right, and now on to my real question for the geek, and this is kind of where my credibility with at least some of the aforementioned speakers starts to wane. It was mentioned at this event, as often happens, inexplicable phenomena I get punted over to God's side, that it says in the original manuscripts that when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions, John 14.2, the original words house and mansions were actual cosmos and worlds, respectively, but I haven't been able to find any corroborating evidence that this is the case, and was thus wondering if perchance you might know of any of the manuscripts do contain such words or allusions. Um, oh, let me grab a Greek New Testament here. And uh, we ought to be able to tell quickly... And uh, so, John 14.2, you might say, Price, don't you prepare for these podcasts? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, so, um, let's see here, uh, I've been preparing for decades, I guess you could say. John 14.2, uh, um en te oikia tu patros, 
in the house of the father, uh, Mu, my father, um, uh, Monai Polai Estin. Yeah, there, there's no, uh, there's no uh, reference to worlds or cosmos or anything like that. The Greek uh, ion and cosmos and so on. If the claim is that there are early manuscripts that that have it, though they're not in most manuscripts, the ones from whom translations are made, well, that's just speculation. Uh, that's just another one of these rumors. Uh, there's there's no. Uh, I'm sure there's no manuscript evidence for that, or we'd uh, even as a variant. It's just that that would come in handy. Okay. Um, Lachlan Cristante Vampire Predator. One topic that comes up on the Bible Geek quite often is the delay of the parousia. It struck me that will not taste death could better could be better off like the variants of Hamlet that have solid flesh instead of solid flesh melting, melting, or more famously, blessed are the cheesemakers. I'm pretty sure there isn't a suitable Greek word for a food that sounds remotely like thanatu, death. Uh, I'm inclined to go with the idea there are immortals among you. Um... What is this? Yeah, not taste death, right? Uh, still, this race is a pretty big issue, that of dairy. I couldn't find a single reference to cheese or milk or cows outside of the single veal reference in Luke 15.33. I know part of this is simple length, how much of it is avoiding the subject of kosher food laws, and how much of it is a cultural transition away from dairy, and how much of it is just a change of climate. I've been fascinated by the interaction of food and religion since I first read Cannibals and Kings by Marvin Harris, and I've been thinking much more biblically since attempting unsuccessfully to coax my mother-in-law into a ketogenic diet. The two things she is unwilling to surrender are wine and bread. I thought for sure you're going to say... Wine and blood. Anyway, P.S. Genesis 18.8 seems to feature cheeseburgers. Even though there is issues surrounding food since Genesis 2.17, it wasn't until Abraham served cheeseburgers that I started really paying attention. P.P.S. Do you think John the Baptist ate locusts or pancakes? Agrides first and acrides second. I know locusts is a more common variant and they're actually pretty tasty, but my wife goes with the less common variant as well as the Syrian lectionary hypothesis where if you strip the Quran of its diacritical markings, you have 72 raisins. Yeah, white grapes, right? As uh, some translated. Yeah, um, the uh, Ebionites claimed that John the Baptist was eating uh, carob pods uh, that, uh, you know, pseudo chocolate is made of today. And uh, 
people have said, well, this was because the uh, Ebionites were vegetarians and so they changed it. But on the other hand, they may have been right. And John is pictured as sharing their sort of asceticism because um, no doubt because of the pun. Uh, carob pods were often called locusts. So that's, I don't think anybody can ever really tell what we're supposed to think John the Baptist uh, ate. Now, what the heck does it say in Genesis 18 8? I have a hunch I know where you're going with, with this, but let's see if I can get these pages apart here and. Uh, Oh, man. Uh, what would be a good kind of paper to use to make turnable pages in Bibles? Uh, okay. Um, uh, then he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Uh, Abe is not uh, shown uh, keeping uh, rabbinical uh, cash ruth here, right? Since he's having milk and uh, beef together. Yikes. So I guess uh, blessed is Abraham. Um, and the, when it says all nations will bless themselves by you, that must be the origin of blessed are the cheesemakers. Yeah. Um, oh, um, cheese milk cows outside the veal reference in Luke 15, you know, the, uh, the prodigal son coming home. Yeah. I can't think of it. Uh, one off hand. Yeah. Good, good point. Um, I wonder why they don't mention that. It could be that the 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 more Jewish writers like Matthew take dietary restrictions for granted, and uh, the other ones like Mark and Luke just don't care. Uh, Um, (laughs) Oh, we got another one with food coming up here. Oh yeah, another one from Lachlan. Yeah. Uh, like most people, I've never tried to harmonize the temptation of Jesus being told he could turn rocks into food with the multiplication of loaves and fishes, but I just listened to your Bible geek where you bring this up in the context of the cursed fig tree. Um, although I try to approach the Bible on its own terms, I also bring to the table all of my cultural background, including, including Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, where Gamp's Law of Elemental Transfiguration explains quite clearly what Jesus can and cannot do. Um, Food cannot be created from non-food, but it can be multiplied if one already has some food. Uh, It can be enlarged and it can be summoned from a remote location. Water, however, can be created. Uh, 
from non-food, um, which is why Moses was able to cause water to pour forth from a rock. But the mere suggestion of turning rocks into bread is a mockery. Although this may sound facetious, as a vampire, I tend to see Jesus as another vampire, more advanced in what he can do, but with certain upper limits as to what is magically possible and what cannot be done. Potent, yes, but not omnipotent, because the ability to produce food ex nihilo is a very common part of the science fiction and fantasy world due to Star Trek's replicators. Scrutiny Organizing the miracles of any given story to see what the limitations of Jesus actually are gives one the sense of what the authors may have been thinking. I don't know if J.K. Rowling had the Bible in mind or was trying to explain why Harry, Ron, and Hermione were in real danger of hunger without contradicting the magical appearances of food in the prior novels. With how much outrage, or perhaps 1980s Dungeons and Dragons satanic panic nostalgia, certain Christian factions have expressed over the Harry Potter series, I'm fairly certain she'd never admit to consciously referencing the miracles of Jesus as magic that a British teenager would be capable of. Then again, some other Christian groups have taken warmly to the parallels, Narnia style, and embraced Harry Potter as a Compatible, uh, compatible with Christian living. Uh, yeah, uh, let's see. Apparently, the uh, turning bread and stones into bread is kind of based on the fact that the bread would have been round barley loaves, which would be like a, a dinner roll, uh, so that it kind of looks like these stones in the desert and uh, and it is assumed that Jesus is able to conjure it out of thin air basically uh, and uh, that uh, it would be a, a great great miracle actually I don't think the multiplication of food would be any uh, less difficult than that uh, and uh but I, I don't know. Uh, of course, the, the punchline is that he doesn't change the stones to bread uh, and that he, um, to, he he does multiply the loaves and fish. Why does he not do the one? Both have to do with assuaging hunger, right? And um, they, they, they're trying to make different points that um, Jesus is, oh, I mentioned, I meant to mention this earlier in connection with why Jesus is tempted. Uh, the uh, Greek word pyrosmos means both temptation and test. Uh, and so Jesus is really being tested. I mean, the two can easily be interrelated, obviously. Uh, the devil is trying to see if Jesus has what it takes. He's just been uh, ordained to be the Messiah at the Jordan baptism. And now he's uh, the, the immediately the spirit drives him into the desert to be tested by uh, Satan who as you remember in the Old Testament was appointed to test the hearts of those ostensibly serving God David and uh, Joshua the high priest and uh, and Job right the same thing's going on here let's see if he's got what it takes because uh, if he is the son of God he's not going to fall for these things you getting hungry after a fast well 
here wanted to chow down on this rock. Uh, and uh, and uh, the other things, why don't you just demonstrate your superpowers by jumping off the roof of the temple because surely God will send his angels to pick you up, right? Uh, I mean, that should be your prerogative, right? And it's self-aggrandizement. Jesus wants no part of it. And then uh, ruling the world, right? Look, that's, you know, the Messiah, a lot of people thought the Messiah would do that, right? And he's saying, no, no thanks, not my job. And so he's passing the test uh, there, but there's no test involved with the multiplying of the loaves and fishes. It says quite clearly he had compassion on the crowd, that they, they were out in the middle of nowhere, they hadn't brought enough food. He didn't want them passing out on the way home for lack of food and all that. So uh, that, to me, is the real uh, contrast. And as you say, since uh, Moses is said to have brought water out of a stone, presumably the gospel writer thought uh, Jesus could have made uh, food out of the stone. Uh, but he didn't. Um, let me see. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for today. I uh, will try to get back to you uh, soon with another geek, and I appreciate your interest in my work. I wish uh, you would consider joining um, me on Patreon, uh, where you will then be able to listen to uh, the Human Bible, which we have revived there, and I periodically post various uh, uh, papers and articles and so on that are not uh, available elsewhere. And um, so if you would uh, like to join up there, we'd love to have you. Um, just look for Patreon, Robert M. Price, uh, you'll, you'll find me. Thanks for joining me on The Bible Geek. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.